we make our way through the Bible. All right, Matthew chapter 10 is where we're going to be. So if you guys want to get out uh, your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's one probably close to you in a seat pocket in front of you. We're going to be in the 10th chapter of Matthew. And this morning, we're actually going to finish our series we've been in as we're going through this, the uh, mission discourse. And I might remind you that the mission discourse is the second of five uh, teachings or discourses located in the book of Matthew. Now, this one in particular actually starts not in chapter 10, but back in chapter 9. It begins around verse 35, where we're told by Matthew that Jesus was going around all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. And he was going through preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And as he was doing that, he looked out over all the people that were gathered around. And he tells his disciples that were gathered there, look at the end of chapter 9. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there's lots of harvest. There's just not many laborers, not many workers. And so he encourages his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So as Jesus looks upon this crowd, he looks upon them with compassion. Uh, not disdain, which we tend to look at when a large crowd gathers. You can only imagine what these people look like, right? I mean, this was the, the sick and the lame and the demon-possessed. I mean, it was some kind of circus that was traveling around with Jesus at this time. And so the disciples look at them one way, and yet Jesus looks at them with compassion. And then he encourages them to pray before they act. That is usually a, a, a list that I get out of order all the time. I like to act and then pray that God fixes whatever I just acted upon. But here, Jesus is making it clear. We are to pray first and act secondly. And so, as he encourages them to pray, as it works so often with the Lord, um, they pray for workers to work the harvest, and then they become an answer to their own prayer. They actually become the answer to the prayer, because in the next chapter, where we've been at now for four weeks, and many of you are wondering, are we ever going to get out of chapter 10? Yes, today we will be all done with chapter 10. Have no fear. Have a little faith. Um, but what, they, what Jesus does is he actually takes out of this group of disciples, there was probably uh, several disciples, maybe 50, maybe 100, we don't know. Uh, he takes out of that group a specific 12, and he calls them apostles. The word apostles just means sent ones. So he's going to send them out into the mission field. He's going to put them on mission but before he does, this is where we arrive in chapter 10. He's going to give them instructions on the mission at hand. So he loves them enough to not just send them out there blindly. He's going to send them out. He's actually going to give them power, authority uh, to preach and teach and also to heal in the same ways he was able to heal. But then he's going to give them instructions. And we've, we split this up into three different sections. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the call to mission. And at the end there of that section... What we boiled this down to is we're to look and see what God is up to and then get involved in that thing. We're, we don't have to go out and create all kinds of new ways to get involved. Uh, Jesus is up to things all over the place. We're simply to look at where he's at and then get involved for the thing as he moves our hearts about it. And then last week in what was, uh, I'd say, probably our most popular message uh, in Woodlawn Chapel to date, we talked all about persecution. Right? Folks love to hear when you show up to church, lay some persecution on us. And that's precisely what we did. And so we talked all about uh, the persecution that was to come, but we also talked about the difference between persecution, which comes from man, 
It's always Satan-inspired. The heart behind persecution is to kill and to steal and to destroy and to discourage. And we talked about the difference between that and wrath. Right? Wrath is from God. He, he pours out his wrath. And yet, while persecution is always looking to stop us and to discourage us, that even in his wrath, this is what is so amazing about the God we serve, um, there is always a heart of redemption. Right? We just sang about that, that as Jesus is on the cross, God's wrath is actually laid out upon him. What's the heart behind that? It's that you and I could be redeemed. He is looking, what Ezekiel writes, is that he takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Even the wicked, he's looking for them to turn their evil hearts and to return to him. So, in that second piece last week, uh, the second message, we looked at that the calling is not going to be free of trouble. And that's what Jesus wants to communicate to them. He wants them to have eyes wide open. You're getting ready to go out on mission for me. The calling is not going to be free of all troubles. And then uh, this week, where we're going to finish things up in chapter 10, is the consideration to complete the mission. Jesus is going to lay it out there that they are not to be afraid of those persecutors that are all around them, but they are to be uh, encouraged because the, the world really has nothing on you. That's the ultimate message here. Look, the world ain't got nothing on you. It, it's only temporary. Whatever the world can throw, it's, it's very worst. And, and here's the bottom line. The prize far outweighs any temporary troubles we might take on. So whatever thing that, that is being laid on us, it is only for a short time. Even unto death, what Jesus is promising is eternal. All right, so verse 27 of chapter 10 is where we're going to begin. And Jesus says to them, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more value than, in, than many sparrows. And therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so where we begin this morning is in verse 27, Jesus encouraging them to take what uh, he tells them in the dark, I want to stop there. It's not talking about um, darkness like we think of uh, in terms of evil. He's saying, whatever I tell you in private. And now he, he's saying, whatever I tell you in private, go and preach on the housetops. But first, you have to have a private time with him. There must be a place where you find that you spend time just you and Jesus. Just a little bit of quiet time. Maybe it's a prayer closet. Uh, maybe it's a kitchen table, wherever that spot is. But the reality is, if you don't have uh, any time with him in private, you're not going to have anything to say about him in public. So conversely, if, if you spend private time with him, it's from this spot that he will actually uh, give you things you're to say in public. It's amazing how he will prepare what's getting ready to take place for you in the day to come. That, that oftentimes that little snippet he gives you in the morning Bible time becomes the very thing you need to defend whatever is taking place from the world surrounding you. And then, at the end of this verse, he says, whatever you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetops. 
Now in Israel, what they have many places are these flat roofs, and they would actually go up on the rooftop, and they would be able to enjoy the cool breeze during the day. They didn't have the AC in the day of Jesus. They didn't have any window air conditioning units, so they had to get up onto the rooftop to catch a little bit of a breeze. So what happens is these rooftops end up being like their living room. They're able to go up and hang out on. But what I like, what he's saying here is, uh, I'm going to give you what to say in your ear, and then I'm going to give you a platform with which you can say it on. So these rooftops become a place to actually stand up to be able to speak to the people all around. Now then verses 28 through 31 He's speaking to them now about their worth, about their value. And for us, oftentimes, we question our value. It's, it seems like it's human nature to want to drop ourselves down a peg or two. We, I'm not worth anything. There's no value here. And what Jesus essentially says is you're more valuable than sparrows, which are only sold for a couple pennies. Now, I learned this week when I was studying, uh, this is important for you all to note, so you might want to jot this down. There is such a thing as National Chicken Wing Day. Did you know that? Like what? I, I've been living all these years. I had no idea that in July, there's a National Chicken Wing Day. And what Jesus is basically saying is, look, you're, you're more valuable to me uh, than chicken wings. Right? Now, now when I was in college, uh, and I transferred up to the University of Illinois, there was this uh, restaurant. It was a bar. There was a restaurant that was up above uh, Green Street called Brothers. And every Wednesday night, they would have 10-cent wings and Dollar Miller High Lifes. Like, it didn't get any better for a college kid. If you could scrape together 10 bucks, you're looking at a whole pile of wings, maybe a few too many Miller High Lifes. I couldn't figure out why the next day we didn't feel very good. You know, it had to have been the late-night studying because it couldn't have been the pile of wings and the champagne of beers. Surely that wouldn't have done it. But, but here what Jesus is saying is, uh, you're more valuable than even a pile of 10-cent chicken wings. But what he's really trying to communicate is uh, the chicken wings are actually important to him. That he knows every sparrow that hits the ground. Every bird that's in the air, he knows, and none of them are actually going to fall unless it's by his will. And, and what that tells me is that God is in the details. Have you ever heard the phrase, the devil's in the details? That is one of the biggest lies from the pit of hell because the reality is God is in the details. And that means that every detail of your life, every small thing that you've convinced yourself, he's too busy to hear from me about this thing or that thing. Uh, surely the God of the universe has no interest at whatever I've got going on today. I want to assure you here today, if you're nothing else, he cares about that. And the closer you grow with him, the more you, you just walk with him, you'll find that you begin to just talk to him about every little thing in your day. You have no idea how many times Angela has lost her keys and she's had to ask Jesus to help her find her keys. You know what he does? He finds her keys, right? Even, even the, her uh, engagement ring. She loses the rock off that thing last week. And amazingly, Jesus cares about that. She didn't know it was a cubic zirconia. Don't tell her. Thankfully, this isn't on live. Oh, no, it's not. That's a joke. The reality is he's not too busy even for the smallest, minorest of details. And then verses 32 and 33, here he's talking about if we confess him before men, he'll confess us before his Father. And if we deny him, he's going to deny us. And then that causes all of us to go, 
I want to just reassure you, he's not talking about the occasional or the sometimes even season-long denial of Jesus. You understand? If you've been through seasons where you've denied him or didn't want to acknowledge him, uh, he's talking about a lifetime spent of deny, 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 all the way to the point of I'm going to deny him on my very deathbed. That's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's a refusal to admit that he is who he says he is and to accept him as your Savior. Because here's the reality. If it was just about a one-time, one-off denial, uh, the Apostle Peter, you know, the first preacher in all the New Testament, he's in deep trouble. Because he denied Jesus not one time, not two times, but three times he denied Jesus at his trial. And yet what the Lord has for Peter is uh, grace, restoration. To come alongside him and go, look, Pete, uh, we're going to work on this thing uh, together. So with all that said, what we're going to find this morning are three different considerations in our consideration of the mission. And this brings us to our our first one. And that is, uh, what we fear is what we worship. That's our first one. So what we fear is uh, what we worship. And the first question I would pose, uh, rhetorical, don't worry, you don't have to answer this. Uh, What takes up your time, your thoughts, your energy, your money? That's the first question. Now, what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, is this, that the approval or the fear of man brings about a snare. I mentioned this last week. I'll read it for you here in Proverbs 29, 25. He says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. And so the fear of man is actually a trap. That, that when we're worried about what everyone else thinks and what everyone else will possibly say and who's going to approve of this or that, that, that there's no actual approval you can ever receive from man that won't then lead to the next approval. Like, you're never going to actually obtain it. It's, it's a trick. But instead, what we should do, I'll go back to Proverbs 9, verse 10, where Solomon writes here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So who we are to fear is actually the Lord. And what Solomon says is that this is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is simply knowledge applied. If any of you have ever been to college, you've experienced all kinds of knowledge, and probably not nearly enough application. That's because there are lots of folks with lots of degrees that have lots of knowledge, and they are not wise. But what The fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. Now, we are confused lots of times by what this uh, fear of the Lord is. What does this mean to fear the Lord? And one of the best uh, ways to put it, metaphorically speaking, would be to take the ocean as an example. I can go down to hillbilly heaven down in Destin. I can stand with my feet in the sand and I can look out at the Gulf of Mexico. And I can be in awe of it, in, in reverence. It is uh, beautiful, right? That's the way we would look upon it. And yet, if you find yourself uh, in a life raft in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, in a storm, uh, talking to your best friend who's a volleyball, uh, that is a whole different kind of feel, or fear, right? That's a whole different fear. That, that is a terror. It's the same ocean. It's the same unbelievable place to, to look at and look upon, and yet in the middle of it, uh, I am terrified. That's 
what the fear of the Lord is from a metaphorical sense. It's to, to be in reverence, in awe of him, and yet also to understand our place in all this. I am to be a fear, I am to have a fear of him, a healthy fear. Now, fear in and of itself is, is a God-given emotion. Fear can do uh, several things. One, it can keep us out of danger, right? For anyone that's not uh, clinically insane, if you have a fear, a healthy fear, you would know not to do uh, silly things, right? Things that are dangerous, that would take your life. God wants you to value your life, which is why uh, every video you see from any central Illinois redneck that ends in tragedy always starts with what phrase? Uh, hey, hold my beer and watch this, right? It always starts with that phrase, and then tragedy is soon to fall. Actually, nowadays, it, it starts like, hey, hold my beer and get Facebook Live on. Now watch this. Like that's, that's how it always goes. It, because why? What, what the alcohol has done is it's suppressed my natural fear to go, this might end very badly for me. And so fear can actually keep us out of danger, but fearfulness is never a good thing. Fearfulness is what Paul is actually addressing to his young protege Timothy back in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, as he's addressing him. And apparently Timothy had some fear issues. He was fearful of people around him. And so what Paul writes is, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, what God actually wants to do is give you confidence. He wants to give you a, a spirit of, of power and of love and of a sound mind. And yet what Satan wants to do is he wants to sow fear into everything. He wants to give you a spirit of fear, of fearfulness, which looks like anxiety and doubt and disbelief and, and concern over every little thing. It's a spirit of fearfulness. And the issue with fearfulness among many is uh, fearfulness to go back to what I said to start, what you fear is what you worship. Fearfulness is idolatry, is really what it is. It, it leads to this uh, worship of things that are not God. Well, what I'm going at with this is when you fear um, that relationship, when you fear that uh, connection you have to another person, let's say a, a child, when you fear uh, losing them, when you fear a relationship that dissolves to your spouse or to parents or whatever you happen to fear if you're not careful as that anxiety builds and, and you fear losing it you begin to actually uh, worship that and it's misplaced in all these ways and, and and oftentimes they never ask to be put in that spot you just put them there and lots of times inadvertently and yet when we get the order out of you know when we get things out of order this is why god put this in the ten commandments you should worship you should have no other idols before me for this very reason it's not healthy because what happens when god gets angry what happens when god gets cancer what happens when god dies tragically right then all of a sudden when we've got our god is positioned in such a way that something happens to him or her uh, now we're devastated. And so lots of times when I would read through the Bible as a kid, I would think, you know, God just wants us to worship him because he's some kind of egomaniac. And now, in my 40s, I realize, no, he just loves me enough. He doesn't want my God to come tumbling down. It's healthy for me to put him up at the top because it's, it's what's best. 
Fearfulness is also an insult to his character, too. See, because what we, when we say, I'm fearful of losing these things, what we're really communicating to him is, I don't trust you. I don't trust that you have my best interest in mind and at heart at all times. And so this lack of trust is really an insult to him. And where I'm going with that is um, God, actually there are things that God cannot do. I think I've shared this with you before. In church growing up, I heard this all the time, that God can do anything. But there are actually things that he has limited himself that he cannot do because it's against his character, like God cannot lie. He, he is incapable of telling us a lie. He is also incapable of giving bad gifts, which means that every gift God gives is always good. And so what I'm communicating to him when I'm fearful is that I don't trust you or that I believe you might give me something that's not good for me. I want to be on the throne in this situation. Now, to move from fearfulness back to fear, fear can also be a motivator that leads to repentance. What the Apostle Paul shares with the church there in Galatia who's struggling with legalism, right? We, we see legalism in our churches all the time. There's these rules and these regulations. You have to follow this if you want to follow Christ. And this is the same thing that's taking place in the Galatian church. They, they have all these rules they think they have to follow in order to be a Christian. And yet what Paul communicates to them in Galatians chapter 3 is that the law is actually perfect in what it was supposed to do. It was supposed to point to the fact that you cannot do this thing on your own. It, Paul actually refers to the law as a schoolmaster. Verse 24 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by, not works, but faith. But then, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? Because we're now under Christ. He's allowed us to live with this liberty free from the law, and yet what the law was meant to do was to be a motivator to repentance. When we try to live under rules and regulations, even if they're self-created, we realize, look, I don't want to stand in front of a perfect God who's going to judge me on my own account. I do not want to take my filthy rags and stand before him and go, this is the best I've got to offer. And the law was to point that out. Because if you broke one law, you're a lawbreaker all the way through. And there's only 613 of them in the Old Testament. So good job trying to keep track and, and, and take care of all 613. The reality is uh, we can't do it, right? And so the law is to point that out. And what uh, A.W. Tozer said, I, I love this quote, he said that no one can know the true grace of God who has not first known the fear of God. That the fear of standing before Him makes you completely understand and respect and acknowledge His grace upon our lives. He's our mediator. He's the one that's going to step in between us and a perfect God. To continue on with this, as soon as the slide changes and I can remember what I was talking about, Hang on just a second. It'll be really smooth when it comes up. See, there you go. Fear also works in uh, evangelism, right? What I mean by that is, is Jesus is telling them, look, don't be afraid of the Jews or the Romans because what what's the worst thing the Jews and the Romans can do? The Jews hated them because they were disrupting their religious order. They wanted to kill them. 
the Romans were upset because they were uh, disrupting their civil order. And so, there you go, they also want to kill them. They want to stop all these things. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid of them, but instead uh, fear God. And what the Apostle Paul says, I put it up on the screen for you in 2 Corinthians 5.11, is that knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That when we fear the Lord in a healthy way, we are actually... uh, Persuade, we are persuaded to then persuade men to what? To salvation. That we share because we're persuaded based on the fear of the Lord. I don't want to stand in front of Him and say, I didn't share my faith with anyone ever. And the reality here is that a private faith is not a saving faith. A faith that you are private on, that you're unwilling to talk to other people about, it might save you. Good job saving yourself, but it does not save anyone around you. Therefore, a private faith is not one that leads others to salvation. And so what we're encouraged to do is, uh, James would say, uh, confess, right? Confess your sins one to another. Confess just means to say it back. By the way, when you confess a sin, do you understand God is never surprised? He's never shocked by whatever thing that you wanted to hold on to so tightly. You're simply just telling him what he already knows, now, James's encouragement here is to actually confess one to another. What John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, uh, he says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is uh, both a one-time thing and an all-the-time thing. That when we confess that He is our Lord and Savior, and we lay it all out there before him. We ask him to come into our lives and transform us. What I want you to change me. That in that moment, you are positionally secured for all of eternity. You are one of his. That's it. It's a done deal. It's a beautiful thing. And yet practically, what we all know is we are not done sinning. <laughs> like we're, we're, I am not done sinning in this life. And so practically, this is a continual uh, cleansing. This is a be ye being cleansed. It's a continual process. And as we do that, we are on our way to, to finally be someday what he always intended for us to be uh, positionally. So we're working through this life as he's cleansing us uh, as we go. And yet, we're so uh, pinned up about our sin. We don't want to confess it, right? And so that, that unwillingness to confess and just lay it out there uh, the reality is it enslaves us. So I want to encourage you that if you've got something going on and you just uh, want to talk about it, there is nothing healthier than just uh, laying it out there to someone you trust. So, and, and one of the fears that's, that's in most people's minds, at least it was in mine for the longest time, is if I confess this thing, um, that person, my pastor, is going to think this of me. That if I lay this out there, they're going to think I am the worst person ever. And I want to just tell you from my spot, having now had the opportunity to hear lots of people throw lots of things on me, um, this is the reality. I am never, at least not so far, ever, ever actually a shock. <laughs> I'm, never, I'm never surprised. Anytime someone's ever said, well, I got something to talk to you about, it's kind of a big one, Pastor. I'm just going to need a few minutes to talk to you about this thing. That, that when they finally tell me what it is, in my head, this is what I'm actually thinking. Well, that wasn't really that bad at all. I mean, I've thought or done or almost done way worse stuff than that. Like, that's, that's the reality of it. That, that so often we're held up and pinned by this thing 
that, that is probably an experience that can be shared because it's, it's common. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. There's no sinning we could do that hadn't already been done before. So we end up enslaved by this, but what Jesus is encouraging them to do is to confess Christ and to confess to one another. To confess Christ. And when we do, here's some ways, some, some things it can look like as we confess Jesus. Uh, it, could, it could look in three different ways that I put up here for you on the screen. The first one is a verbal confession. Right? Sharing your acceptance of Jesus. Just to say, hey, I've accepted Jesus. I want to tell you about it. That's a simple way to do it. And yet, not all of us feel comfortable with doing that. So here's a practical way to do it. It's, it's what baptism is really all about. Baptism is the opportunity to share with people. Maybe if you're not comfortable saying it in words, you get to actually do it in, in picture form. You get to share with them that you're now identifying yourself with Jesus. That I'm going to bury the old man let the new man be raised up. I'm going to identify with him. It's an outward sign of an inward change. It's not for salvation purposes, but it's to, it's to show everybody uh, uh, out there in the world, look, this is what I've decided to do. I've decided to follow after him. Now then, the next piece would be, uh, what, what do you talk about? What do you talk about in conversations when you're just uh, speaking to a coworker or, or a friend? What comes up in your conversations? Is it Jesus? Is it what God's up to in your life? As he, you know, as, he, as he knocks down these walls and he's changing these things, does he come up casually just in the process of conversation? That is actually a way to witness to him and confess to him just naturally in your, in your walk. The second way is morally, that a transformed life should look different. That if you are a life transformed, if you've been changed from the inside out, it should look like uh, it always did. So if we do the same things, if we go to the same places, if we talk the same way, if we watch the same things, if we listen to the same things, the question is, what changed? To people around you, nothing, right? So they just said they accepted Jesus, and yet nothing changed whatsoever. What I want to encourage you to do is change your mind and let God change your behavior. If you change your mind, it's amazing what things he's going to show you and what things fall off quickly. So the, the second piece I put up here is that if we act the same, uh, who would want to follow that, right? If, if we act the way we always acted, then, then why would the world ever be attracted to that thing? And then thirdly and finally is uh, relationally. That as you uh, come to know Jesus and walk closer to him, what you'll want to do is you'll want to love what he loves. And you know what he loves? Sheep. He loves him some sheep. So the reality is you'll actually want to be around other believers. You'll desire to have a communion with them, to have fellowship with them, to, to hang around with them. Right? We've got a Super Bowl party coming up here in just a, a week. That those are the kind of things that you just get to hang around. We're not going to have some great elaborate program. We are literally just going to hang out, and we want to encourage you to have other people come in just to hang out. And i got to tell you a little secret, and here it is. I don't really care about the Super Bowl. I'm not really here to watch the stinking Super Bowl. I could do that from my couch. You know what I want to do? I want to hang out with you all. I just want to sit and fellowship and hang out with you guys. That's what the love of Christ actually looks like in the church, right? It's not to just blaze out of here and not talk to one another and fellowship with each other. The reality about the message today is, 
I'm going to go long in the message like I normally do, and you're not going to beat the Baptist to the Lincoln Garden anyway. So you're not really getting out of here fast enough to beat him to eat anyhow. So you might as well hang out and just enjoy each other's company. Now, notice with me that all this can be seen in public. All these things can be seen by other people, which is why what I said earlier was that a private faith is not a saving faith. All these things are done out in and amongst people. And if we are going to be nothing more than a holy huddle, then we're not really going to affect anyone in the community around us. So I want to encourage you in that, that these things can be seen in public. All right, we are going to get through the rest of the chapter, I promise. So the second consideration there in verse 34, let's continue. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves a son or a daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And so the second consideration, and this is uplifting, that following Christ is costly. That following after Jesus uh, is costly. Now salvation, you've probably heard it if you've been to church any period of time at all, um, that salvation is a free gift, right? We promote at churches the free gift of salvation, and that is true, by the way, in this sense, that there's nothing you can do to earn it. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot do anything in your life to earn the free gift of salvation. Jesus did that willingly. He laid down his life for you and I, and all we simply have to do is confess that he's our Lord and believe it with all of our heart, and then he saved us. That's it. It's free. And yet, what is uh, incredibly unpopular to talk about in church, in fact, uh, most of the time we just won't mention this at all, uh, it, unless you teach through the Bible verse by verse, you're stuck having to talk about things that are uncomfortable, is this, that while the gift is free, uh, it'll cost you everything. It'll cost you your life. You have to lay down your life so that you can have eternal life. Now, the truth is, um, if you're not a believer of Jesus, then spiritually you're dead anyway. So you're really just trading in your death for his life, but it still will cost you. Isaiah chapter 9 says that the Lord at his first coming is going to be a prince of peace. He is actually going to come and his objective, the object of his first coming is peace. And yet what you'll find throughout scriptures as we finish the book of Matthew over these next several months is that the effect is actually uh, discord. That everywhere he's going to go, you're, you're going to find there is not actually any peace around him. And the reason for this is that at Jesus' death, that the veil that was there in the temple, there was this large veil in the temple, and it separated the holy place from the most holy place, the, the holy spot from the holy of holies. And the veil was not small. It was, it was huge. It was probably 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and it separated this area that they were only to go into, only one man a year, the, the high priest of all of Israel, could go into one day of the year at Yom Kippur. He could go into the very presence of God and offer atonement 
That's what that means, the Day of Atonement for all the nation. So no other time were they allowed to enter. It was this separation that had been caused because of sin between man and God. And yet as Jesus took his last breath there on the cross, the veil ripped. It tore, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And this was not some really thin piece of paper or a curtain, by the way. This was an 18-inch thick veil of fabric that ripped from top to bottom. And what it signified is that now man can have open access through Jesus Christ to the Holy of Holies. That what was once dead and separated for all of eternity, we now have access to, and yet it came at Jesus giving his life. And it came with ripping and tearing. And so that in our lives, as we accept Jesus, he is going to give you peace like you've never experienced before. Internally, you will have a peace that passes all understanding. You will know where you're going to go, and yet around you, it will cause ripping and tearing lots of times in families and in relationships. It can cause a discord. It can be very painful. That's what Jesus is trying to explain here. And yet, uh, what we find is that he's encouraging them in this so that they can know his peace. Because at his second coming, what he's going to do is he's actually going to show up uh, this time with a sword. He's not going to show up little Jesus meek and mild, but he's going to show up with a sword prepared to set everything back the way he meant it to be. And at that, at the end, it will actually bring, he will actually bring peace, right? And so when God calls, here's the question, what do we actually let get in the way? Do we let money, status, family, what different things do we, do we allow to get in the way of us and him? His encouragement here is for us to take up our cross. Luke actually says deny ourselves and follow him. Denying yourself is different than self-denial, right? Self-denial is just a matter of willpower. And yet um, the word self is first there for a reason because it has everything to do with you. But denial of self means I'm going to put me on the back burner, even though I'm my own biggest fan, and I'm going to do what Jesus has first. And a cross is, is actually an instrument of death. right? We, we wear them around our necks, they look beautiful, but the reality is that this was an instrument of pain and death. And the symbol here is I'm going to die to myself so that I can be a new creation. But what we find is that so often anxious people they cling to this life, right? Anxiety causes us to want to cling and hang on to, and I don't want this thing to change, and I don't want the ripping or the tearing to happen. And so we cling to this life, and, and the truth is, because we cling so hard to this thing, we actually lose our life. So if you look over this last, we're going on 12 months now of this pandemic. One thing that I have noticed now, and I have noted in my journal is that over and over and over again, across socioeconomic boundaries, that people have tried desperately to cling to their life, right? They have locked themselves in. They have shut the doors. I'm not going to see. I'm not going to go. I'm just going to hang on to this life. And many of them have been successful at not getting sick. And yet, I would submit to you that they lost a year of their life, right? You've seen it. They've lost out on Christmases and Thanksgivings and family get-togethers 
and birthdays and over and over and over again in an effort to not lose, they have actually uh, lost tremendously. And so for those then, the encouragement here, there is some encouragement by the way, hang on for it, for those who are willing to lose their life, who aren't willing to just hang on and, and scratch and claw to hang on to this thing, to, to him who is willing to lose it, Jesus says uh, he will find it. If you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. So that leads us to the last, which is that God is generous with his rewards. Verse 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me uh, receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the, right, in the name of the righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a, only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And so we just talked about loss and the pain of the tearing and yet what God is saying here through the mouth of Jesus, he's saying, look, you're going to gain so much more than you ever lost. You're going to gain eternally so much more than you ever lost in this shortened life. And, and the reality is last week we talked about persecution, right? For, for 45 minutes we talked about persecution. And that if we were his servant, we're going to be persecuted like he was persecuted. But that also means... If we were persecuted like he was persecuted, we're also going to be rewarded like he was rewarded. And where is Jesus right now? But he is set at the right hand of the Father. And we get to be, because of his sacrifice, actually there with him. That is some kind of reward. And the question is, who then will receive his rewards? So Jesus goes through these three groups of people. He talks about prophets and righteous men in verse 41. And then in verse 42, Little ones. The encouragement here is that all get to have a part. That he's not going to discriminate. That all are going to have a part in his rewards. And that we all will grow together in this faithful operation one another. And so for the, for the prophet, for the preacher, if you want to call him that, uh, I get the opportunity, the wonderful gift to get a study uh, all week long so that I can share with you guys. And yet, if there is nobody here to share with... Um, I, I miss out, right? I'm going to look pretty silly sitting up here with nobody to talk to. Yeah, for you guys, if you show up and I'm not here to, to sit and share, then you don't get an opportunity to actually grow in your faith either. And so this interaction is actually a case where both of us get to be rewarded. We both get to grow in our faith. I'm learning as you learn as we go through this. And so we, we both get this same reward together. We get to enjoy that. Now, an example of this that probably will paint a better picture than what I just gave you is back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. And so in this spot, um, King David is there, and he is living in the area of the Philistines. So he's been chased out of the country of Israel by his father-in-law. If you think you have a bad relationship with your father-in-law, uh, Saul wanted to kill uh, his son-in-law, so you got it way better than David does. So if your father-in-law doesn't want to murder you, you're doing pretty okay. 
So here's, here's the spot that David's in. He's hiding out, and he's now living with the Philistines, and he's pretending like he's fighting for the Philistines, but he's actually going off to the side, and he's actually uh, taking Philistine villages. So he, he's really fighting for Israel, even though Israel doesn't want him to be a part of them, and he's, taking, uh, you know, he, he's, he's actually taking areas for the land of Israel. So it's kind of a cool thing. He's got this covert operation going on, but while he's there fighting for uh, Israel, while he's in uh, uh, the, the land of the Philistines, that the Amalekites, those pesky Amalekites come in and they destroy their entire town. So him and all his 400 men, their, their, their houses are burnt, their families are taken away, all their stuff is stolen. Uh, they show back up at Ziklag and there's nothing there. It's been wiped out. And so what David does is after they've had a moment to mourn and cry out, he goes to the Lord. And what we're told there in 1 Samuel 30 is the Lord actually gives him strength and tells him to go and pursue the Amalekites, that nothing would be lost. And so for David, who by the way, we often think of as like uh, little David, the little boy with the little sling that killed the big giant. We understand David was one bad dude. Like he was tough as they come. And so he takes off with his 400 men, and they go hot after these Amalekites, and they are in pursuit. By the way, this is after they had fought and, and conquered a whole other town and village. They're now, they're now chasing down the Amalekites. So David is here in this spot. He's like uh, Liam Neeson from Taken. He's got a particular set of skills. He's going to go after these Amalekites and wipe them out. So he's making his way that direction, and some of the guys, uh, they just can't keep going. And so half of the men, they're, they're too worn out. They're wiped out from already having a battle and now pursuing these guys. And so David stops. He has them stay with the stuff. They take off their packs and their extra gear, and those guys were responsible just for staying there with the gear while the other half the men, the other 200, they go and pursue the Amalekites the whole rest of the evening. And they track the guys down, and they wipe them out. The Amalekites are no more. They leave nobody left. And... They are able to recover all their families. Not, not a, a hair was harmed. All their things are able to be brought back. And what's even better is now they've got all the Amalekite stuff. They've got even more spoils than what they started with. And so they're headed back to meet up with the guys that, that stayed around with the stuff. And some of the men say, look, um, they don't deserve a reward because they didn't go fight. They didn't go battle with us, so they just stuck around with the stuff because they're too tired. They don't deserve to have the same rewards that what we had. And in verse 23 of 1 Samuel 30, David said to them, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays with the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from this day forward, he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. And so what David says is the man who stays with the stuff gets the same reward as the one who went off into battle. But there is no difference. And so, so often in churches, we want to have these divisions because this person works harder, this person serves more, this person's the prophet, this one's the righteous man, this one's just the little one, and that there's all these different pockets of rewards. But the reality is what Jesus is communicating, what David was communicating here in 1 Samuel, is that the reward is the same. 
that all get rewarded in God's economy the same with this growth in faith and this salvation. And so, how then do I get a reward, right? What, what is required for us, if there is an expectation here, what is the requirement for the reward, you might ask? The answer is to simply give a cup of water. Now, that might not seem like such a big deal, but I want to encourage you that it really uh, it had another meaning behind it. What Jesus is telling them was considered to be a cultural norm. That for anyone in the land of Israel, uh, it didn't matter if they were your friend, your enemy, uh, your, your closest relative, that if they came to you and said, give me a cup of water, the expectation was for you to give them a cup of water. It, this is why when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman there at the well, even though Samaritans and the Jews hated one another, and he asked her for a cup of water to drink, she drew him out water to, to drink. It was a cultural expectation that they were to give even their enemies a cup of water. And, and maybe a, a better example of it is this. Uh, I have an expectation for my boys. I don't set the highest of expectations because I'm a dad, and that's just what we do. We keep the bar low that they can maybe succeed. And so my expectations are that they, they should not punch each other in the face. That's what I expect of them. Don't hit your brother in the face. Now you can imagine if one of the twins came to me and said, hey, Dad, I didn't hit Jarrett in the face today. Right? I didn't punch him in the nose. I am not going to go, well, woohoo! Way to go, boys! You didn't hit each other in the face. Great job. Oh, I'm so proud of you. No, I'm not going to say that. Why? Because that's my expectation is that you don't punch each other in the face. I don't have a lot of rules here. I'm just saying don't hit each other in the nose. But do you understand what Jesus is communicating here? It's that even the most basic of expectation you're going to get rewarded for. He's not looking for you to go to some faraway land just to receive a reward. He's looking for you to do the very basic thing that's expected. And what might that be? I'll give you an example. Micah chapter 6. I know you guys spend a lot of time in the minor prophets, but in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 6, you don't have to try to find it. I'll read it for you. Uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is what the Lord says through Micah the prophet. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So here's the expectation, right? It, this is all the more difficult that this is. It's to do justly, to do the right thing, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All right, that, that right thing that's inside all of us. We, we all have a conscience. If you don't have a conscience, you probably have some deeper psychological issues we should talk about. But we all have this inner feeling about what is right, what is wrong. What he's saying here is do the right thing. You know what's right, just do it. All right, way before the Nike campaign, do the right thing. To love mercy. Now this is a hard one because oftentimes uh, I don't even like mercy that much. Right? Remember, what mercy is, is not giving someone what they do deserve. I love it when people get what they have coming to them. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, love mercy. Not giving them what they deserve. And then finally, to walk humbly. Well, it could be more humble than taking up a cross. The very symbol of death and following Him. 
So this is the communication for us to, to, let, uh, to tell people about his love, to preach, right? Preaching doesn't have to look like this. It can just be simply telling them what God is up to in your life, to do the right thing and to be like a little one, to just be little, to be humble. And, and, and lastly, I'll end with a story that we get it in our head that the little things we do, they really don't matter in God's economy. That surely this a kind word, this small thing that I did, that this couldn't possibly matter at all. And yet for me, uh, growing up uh, in, in Casey, I had a, a kindergarten teacher. Her name was Mrs. Kelsheimer. So some of you might know Mrs. Judy Kelsheimer. And then when I grew up uh, in high school youth group, she was actually my high school youth group leader. And so she was this wonderful woman. And, and as we graduated from high school, she gave us gifts uh, to go off to college. And her gift was she gave us little uh, notes in self-addressed stamped envelopes that if we dropped the note in, it would say, would you please send me a dozen fresh-baked cookies, Mrs. Kelsheimer. And so you could drop a note in. I was right up here in Thomas Hall. And a week later, roughly, depending on the USPS, you'd get uh, a dozen chocolate chip cookies. And she would put that uh, piece of bread in there to keep them moist. You ever done that? It's amazing. So it kept the cookie. The bread would get super hard, but the cookies would stay moist. She was brilliant. But, but here you would get this little slice of home, when you're homesick in a way, and you would have this, this little bit of love right there in your college dorm room. It was an awesome thing that she would do. And so as I was thinking about that, before the first time I ever got to share a, a message like this with people, over three years ago now, I was preaching on a sowing seeds, sowing good seeds in people's lives, and I realized that that's precisely what Mrs. Kelsheimer was doing for me. Like 20 years before that, she was just simply sowing good seed through something as small and as minor as a chocolate chip cookie in my life. And so she became actually the object lesson of the first message I ever taught to a whole room full of people. Why? Because she simply did the little thing. And so often we listen to the lies of the enemy and he wants to tell us that these little things are not significant in any way, shape, or form. And he wants to lie to you and tell you that it does not matter. And I'm here to tell you that it's, it's the little things for the little ones, those simple expectations that actually shake all of heaven. Do you understand? That, that for me, I'm probably not getting the opportunity to sit here with you all today if it wasn't for a chocolate chip cookie in a dorm room. And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you uh, for chocolate chip cookies, Lord. Thank you so much for these little things that end up making big deals in the lives of people years later. One of the most encouraging things is to know that seeds that we sow years before, we don't always know where they're going to get to come up and grow. And yet we know because we've looked at the laws of reaping and sowing that that it doesn't always come up immediately. And it takes time. And so, Father, I just pray for encouragement as cups of water are passed out to people. That, that they would be, that this congregation would be encouraged to know that those are received and that great is the reward for that. That great is the reward for doing simple things like baking cookies or making soap or simply just crying with someone that is heartbroken. 
that all these little things add up in your economy and they are so much more valuable than we could ever possibly understand. Thank you, Lord, for your rewards. These things that we don't deserve because we're simply just doing what you expected out of us. Lord, I praise you for that. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand for a closing song? What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care. Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. And the church says, Amen. All right, well, thank you guys. Look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget a Super Bowl party and to sign up uh, if you'd like to bring anything. If you need prayer at all, happy to hang around up front and pray with you guys. God bless you. Amen.